Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at re-nourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. Welcome to Climify. I'm Eric Benson, and I'll be your host this season as we talk to climate experts from all over the world to help us design educators fight the climate crisis in our classrooms. And yes, I'm also a design educator. I've been teaching for 15 years here at the University of Illinois. But even if you're not a design educator listening to this show, there's so much useful information jam-packed in each that you too can learn how to do your part to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. This is a special episode of Climify. Uh, It was recorded in the beginning of August at the 2021 AIGA Design Educators Shifted Conference. It was one of uh, many panels uh, there discussing design education, and this one was focused on uh, climate action. Uh, I was asked to be a part of this panel by the AIGA a couple weeks before, and it was short notice, but I felt this was such an important issue that I had to be a part of the panel. And because I host this podcast, I thought, what a great idea it would be to bring on a couple of past guests to be a part of this panel to synthesize some of that information we talked about in those individual episodes as part of a larger group discussion. So I brought back Katie Patrick and Lisa Zimmerman to this AIGA shifted panel and uh, had them talk to each other and to the group about what they do and also what they think uh, design educators can bring to the table when it comes to climate action. Now what you're going to hear in the next about 50 some minutes is a portion portion only of the actual panel. If you want to, you can listen and watch the entire panel in the YouTube link that we have on our page. But otherwise, this is just a brief version of what happened that Saturday in early August. The panel that um, is here today, uh, different approaches, right? but what is common and why I was an advocate for both Lisa and Katie here is that they're both very passionate and their approaches are practical. Like they're, they're trying to do this in a way that can be done and not high level only or not very theoretical only. And sometimes as educators, we can start to drift that way. So I do hope that the, the discussion today, which is next, uh, provide you with very practical ways forward. So um, I don't know everyone's uh, level of knowledge of, of current climate trends and climate science. So I'm asking Lisa and Katie to comment on uh, the, the question of why is it so important now uh, more than ever for us design educators to be including climate science as part of our design curriculum, even foundationally from a sustainability level. Uh, And not just from a teaching perspective, but from a design practice perspective. And then I want you to to think about too is, what are the roadblocks? Why why isn't this happening? So I'll turn it over to both Lisa and Katie here and feel free to jump in um, and with that question, a set of questions. And if you're in the audience, feel free to um, write things in in the chat. Lisa or Katie? I'm just going to jump on that, Katie, and you can add to that later. Um, Why we need to uh, bring sustainability into our practice? I think that was your first question. And teaching. Yeah, both really (laughs) 
is, is the same answer. I think um, we have really high goals uh, in, in reducing global warming uh, or hmm, reducing our negative impact, I suppose. Uh, if we want to keep our 1.5 degree goal, I'm not sure if you in the States actually uh, actually call it that 1.5 degree. We do in Europe anyways. Yeah. You do as well? Good. <laughs> Wasn't sure because of Fahrenheit. But um, yeah, if we want yeah. to keep that goal, um, we have to really do everything. We have to pull all the strings now. Uh, and I think each of us uh, as an individual and on a professional side as well. And I always find, I think what made me go into this direction is that I always saw uh, tips on how you can reduce your own impact. You know, you can recycle, you can, you know, stop wasting water and stuff. But that's just me. It's such little impact. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way. And of course, I do that as well. But I find in my job, I have much bigger impact in what I can do. And I kind of have so much impact. So whatever our job is, and as a designer, especially, as I said, we have so much responsibility uh, and we make design decisions all day long, and each decision can be can be directed in a certain way that it's you know having less negative impact. And then, as an educator, of course, I want to transfer this mindset onto students as well, uh, and, and making it clear that this is the norm. And that's why I still love that I'm not teaching what I I'm not teaching sustainable design just yet. Uh, but teaching just general design modules and that way I can make it normalize it for all of my students um, what sustainable practice is. Yeah, that's an interesting point too, because a lot of us here might be very passionate about what we're discussing today, but you know, are not teaching this um, in our classes. And, and I, like the, I like the analogy, the soup analogy, where um, I want to give kids the soup but I can't, so I got to sprinkle some vegetables throughout the different classes so they get um, that information very foundational. Uh, Katie, what, what are your thoughts about, about that the question? Yeah, it was a difficult question, so I'm really glad that I've gone second because now I could have a little bit of time to, <laughs> time to, um, to uh, think about it. I mean, I've come from a little bit of a different background coming you know hanging out with engineers and scientists engineers and scientists who are terrible at design usually terrible at, at communication um and not very creative and wouldn't even even if they tried that they, they couldn't be and these are the people who have been in charge of trying to roll out these change uh these change campaigns and so what you've had happening is um let's suppose to put people in silos you've got the engineers and the scientists in one silo then you've got, let's say, we'll put creative people all in one silo, filmmakers, comics, artists, graphic designers, the people who are able to make beautiful, captivating things, they're all in one, they're in another bucket over here. Um, and then you've got the behavioral scientists. These are the psychologists who study the research about what actually gets people to change. You know, they really look deeply. They spend their lives doing papers and studies and what gets people to act. And seriously, these three groups do not communicate with each other hardly at all like and so the fact that there's a silo of this going on is just a tragedy and we need to everybody needs to cross pollinate more when you say why do we need to have more um design climate in design education i mean if those three groups are, um, are working together and then you've got all the computer science people the programmers and the technology people at google like seriously the cross pollination is not happening hardly at all it needs to happen everybody's got to be hanging out together and sharing knowledge because that's where innovation happens when two new fields come together that haven't come together um before um, and also, what I just wanted to mention something that you said earlier, Eric, where you said, oh, our work is practical, it's not so much in the design theory. Um, it is very practical, like how to get things done, but um, it's very rooted in a, in a deep theoretical basis. Like all the ideas that I have and the work I've done now and the thinking that I'm doing, I read in academic journals that has been written by people that have PhDs and it's really quite deeply theoretical. So it might look like I just designed this little light with an earth face on it. So it's like a little red light. And I got FIMO. Art people here probably all know what FIMO is, like little wobbling clay. And then I made a little face on it with eyes. And it glows. And it looks just like a cute craft project that I would have done with my child, right? 
but there's like there's deep stuff in here. One, it uses color, it uses automatic feedback loops um, of, of data. It uses color, which I've read studies on and I've interviewed the main author who researches this. Um, it's very powerful. It's you know this part of this ambient theory. Um, it uses like a charismatic face. So you learned that in my presentation I just did. And it uses eyes. There's one study that shows that when you show a picture of eyes watching people, it motivates people to do the right thing, like to put money in an honesty box. And it can also help people motivate people to use, um, you know, less electricity. So I've drawn from this deep theoretical research to come up with something that's very practical. Okay, like put the earth light on and earth light's going to get you to like use the microwave instead of the oven during the peak time. So to do really, I think, good climate design, you need to be versed in all of this academic research, all these tools of the trade of behavioral psychology, which unfortunately gets stuck with like it gets stuck in academic people the only people I know who really understand environmental psychology are people who have done a PhD in environmental psychology like literally like I have never met a single person in the field who knows this stuff who is not doing like postgraduate research like it's the worst if there was a bubble of bubble of bubbles it is the most bubbly mm -hmm. bubble um ever um and, uh, and I just think particularly with a, like a design community, I mean, you can think about it in two different ways. Like often when people are talking about sustainable design, they're talking about a particular product, like they're talking about like a handbag or a garment or a bottle or a box, right? And they're looking at basically the life cycle analysis and the purpose of this item. What, there's a whole other type of design, which is something I'm more interested in, which is how you actually facilitate the, the behavior. Because you can only go so far with a product You've got to really look at the ultimate flow, the whole system of basically how people are using products through their whole lives and looking at how you would design the system, like how you would design, you know, a prompt, like how would you design um, like a, something that sits on your fridge and prompts you to open the fridge less or to remind you that next time you go to the shop, you know, we're not buying these particular types of products or we do want to buy these other types of products. Or if you're looking at, I mean, who cares if the, the, product that you make or the garment that you make is all you know eco-friendly it eventually gets holes in it and you have to throw it out so what is the life cycle of there's so much what I'm trying to say is there's so much design work to be done around the recycling portion of the garments and hardly anybody is working on that there's all these garments eco-friendly or not which get thrown out like the um this the third largest portion of landfill is textiles first is um compostable waste food and uh, grass. The second one is construction waste, and the third one is textiles. So it's actually not plastic. Like that's a whole system that needs to be designed around behaviors, you know. So we don't just look at like the products; look at the entire stream. And that's just such a, a ripe area for people who are great graphic artists to be looking into this psychology, looking into this sort of behavioral flow, and doing something really creative there. Because all of the people who are in charge of sustainability, the engineers and scientists, can't do it. So really, really need, um, really need your, uh, your help. Um, so anyway, that's a bit of a rambly long answer of my notes. So um, I'm just going to stop there. So <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I, I have kind of a script here, but I have dozens more questions leading off from both what, what both you uh, said in your answers. So I'm just going to ask those anyways, because uh, it, it seems like uh, I'm hearing from both of you that there's a lot of moving parts in the idea of systems, everything is connected, but they're not talking to each other and you end up creating the, the same mess over and over and over again. And in academia, of course, you have these silos and even in, in, in the corporate world too, where they're not communicating. So maybe my question is, how do we, how do we stop that? How do we get people to communicate um, more about this so that we can make effective solutions Obviously, that's a tough question too. Uh, so maybe looking at it from the perspective of a designer, how can a designer be a part of, out of that um, type of solution? Well, and, I mean, I don't know, but maybe we just need to have like a big party and just get one person from each, a climate scientist, a graphic designer, a game designer, like a deep technologist, computer programmer, um, and a psychologist, and then just put them together with a challenge and then see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of the Manhattan Project for good um, with a lot more people involved than just scientists could be could be a way to do that. Lisa, I wonder if they get along or they'd all start arguing with each other. 
That's a very possible outcome to that. Yeah, <laughs> ego is getting in the way. Um, I, it's not really the solution, <laughs> but um, I think what I discovered for myself when I when I started thinking about uh, how how can I make this job um, a sustainable one is that I started. Um, sneaking into other realms and I try to encourage as many people you know to do the same so for example um I tried to work very briefly it was difficult <laughs> but uh, to work in uh, in printing so I managed to get a job in printing I was fired after two months but uh, I learned a lot and that was literally my goal um, and then I uh, worked in paper technology as well and I worked in IT briefly as well and that way I kind of like gathered a lot of information so now I'm obviously not recommending to get jobs in order to get fired just to learn from them but um, <laughs> I do also go to a lot of meetings and conferences that aren't designed for people like me necessarily so um just recently uh, we had some amazing conferences on um sustainability in the ict sector for example and i just went in there introduced myself made some amazing connections and that way i think basically what i'm trying to say is i believe that the way we have set up our industries that each kind of stays their own i think that's gonna that's a thing of has to be a thing of the past i don't think that's a sustainable way of looking at professions and industries um especially in design we see that so dominantly that it's not just one job it's all fluid like who works as a just graphic designer you know, like most people work as UX UI designer or they work as a web designer as well, or they work as, don't know, there's so many, it's so interchangeable and it's so fluid. That's why we can't really look at industries like that anymore. And I hate that most conferences, that's still how we communicate most of this stuff. They're, they're too one-sided, you know? And we, that's why I try to sneak in as into as many as I can and just take what I, what I can get from them. But I would love if more people did that, that we try to, you know, open everything up and invite to our own conferences as well, invite people that aren't necessarily working in that sector because it's just, yeah, sectors don't really work for me anyways. <laughs> so we need more uh, infiltration and other yes. worlds as well as them and ours. Katie, do you find that in, in the engineering and environmental science worlds that you're a part of? Do you see that interest in sharing knowledge or, or not? Oh, yeah, I think people are all very, I mean, it's a, got a very lovely kind of personality type, you know, I was attracted to it, not necessarily like a creative type, but everybody is quite, um, you know, open and, and nice. But everybody's sort of fixated on their, um, you know, the discipline. People have studied engineering, they've studied science. It's kind of like the way they, the way they think, and it's quite foreign for them to think in a different way. Um, but I'm just so passionate about this, this topic of like getting out of your field and learning um, new things. There's, I just interviewed on my podcast a, um, a Jesse Shell. He's the author of a, the kind of canonical game design textbook, The Art of Game Design. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and he has this story in his book. If anyone wants to read his book, it's just called The Art of Game Design. It's this big textbook and the story about how he was juggling and he used to like juggle as a teenager and then he found there was this other juggling guy who was like really um wild he did like all this stuff that none of the other jugglers could do and then he just tells the story about how he doesn't like copy other jugglers he says I don't copy anyone in my field everybody else copies every everyone he goes I go out and I look for inspiration everywhere else and I, I wrote about it in, in my book I did a, a podcast I've had all these videos about it it's just such an amazing story of how he became like the best of all the jugglers by not copying people and that's what we do when we're in silos we all copy everybody else we're like oh what fonts is everybody using i'm just going to do that um i think we've got to really like uh watch ourselves of this tendency to copy others and then look to other professions yeah you both also mentioned something which led me to a question that i wanted to also open up to everyone here that's in attendance and that question is, not, not all of us are as well-versed in climate science sustainability as our two panelists here. So, you know, what do you think then our biggest needs as design educators are to, to get ourselves to a level where we can be 
talking about this more confidently with more details, with more actionable things in the classroom, for instance, like using game design as a way uh, to change behaviors. And, and I'll open this up, um, not just to, to Lisa and Katie, but to everyone. What do we need to, to get ourselves up to a level where we're you know, educating the educators essentially to be climate design educators? Lisa, maybe you can um, start with that. And, and if anyone uh, wants to add in in the chat, that would be great. How we can educate designers, uh, educators. That's basically the question, isn't it? Basically. Tough one. <laughs> I think we need to get out of our silos, right? We've heard, but what are the yeah. things that have you uh, felt along your way? Yeah, good one. Um, I thought I could tackle that. Well, I, I would encourage everybody not to be like me and wait uh, six years until they finally... <laughs> get there because as Katie mentioned as well there's a lot of people in academia that kind of do amazing interesting research but then it never gets anywhere um, and I think we need to talk about it even if we aren't experts that's because nobody is just because I specialize in this area doesn't mean I know everything I can't it's impossible and it's also impossible to be completely sustainable in the first place like you know we have to see it as something fluid intangible but we still need to like talk about it and, and do our best and um, that's probably the, the the best way to go about it um yeah what other well, tips I, do I have <laughs> I see in the chat there is something about uh, feeling stuck you know that they don't know enough um, about teaching this topic and one thing that I thought was useful for me was I actually trained with uh, Al Gore's Climate Re Reality Project. And uh, there's a lot of details there. Some of them are uh, very uh, doom and gloom, which Katie said we should avoid. But then there are some very practical things there. And one of them was just a simple fact that manufacturing is, if not the largest, one of the largest contributors to um, our, our climate crisis and around 80% of the environmental damage that comes from any sort of uh, project where something is then manufactured is in the design phase. And that's a huge important fact that we can share with our students as well as, hey, if you're an educator, you might wanna sign up for the climate reality training, it's free. Um, so Katie, um, one the question I was asking here a minute ago, because you had to step away was, um, what do you think, um, what do you think uh, uh, design educators need uh, if, they, if they're not at the level to feel confident about talking about this in the classroom? What, what kind of assistance um, can you give to those educators that feel that way? Well, I just think like, I mean, if you're trying to do any type of climate design, I just don't think you can just get a leg in unless you've got like the basic behavioral psychology stuff down. So, I mean, it's, it's not a very like well-taught subject I mean when it comes to environmental specifics so there's a lot of books there's like the book nudge and the book influence and there's a great textbook called I think it's called like behavior design behavior change design but mm -hmm. when you're coming to environment it it's quite different because we've got this whole like sort of it's called biospheric values like how we connect with the planet and how we kind of influence social change and movement so it's got all these dynamics that traditional behavioral psychology doesn't have um so I think just you know just it would be good if there was a basic pro forma course, like there was just like a PDF. I mean, my book is kind of like a proxy for that, but you know, if there were an academic person could come up with their own, like just looking at like what social norms are, you know, social comparison, feedback loops, um, you know, the reward system of the brain, um, you know, how people create groups, you know, just like the basic stuff. So you don't get designers going out and just making mistakes. I mean, they make mistakes all the time. I've got one, in my book, which is a simple mistake that gets made constantly. Um, and I think everybody makes it until they know otherwise, which is when you tell people the bad thing that's going on, you you explain the negative social norm, which is like, everybody's littering. And then you put a picture of litter. And then what that does is people will imitate that. They'll actually litter more. Cause they're like, well, everyone's littering, you know, who, who cares what you all look, everybody's using lots of plastic bottles. Uh, so uh, you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, you read it and your unconscious mind can't help but imitate. Well, everyone's using plastic bottles. I'll use plastic bottles, too. Instead of framing the, the text saying that, you know, like an increasing number of people are using reusable bottles. Please buy the reusable bottle and a picture of the person using the reusable 
reusable bottle. Like just that basic, like it's just so obvious when you read about it. But if someone maybe didn't ever tell you and you didn't read, you know, you wouldn't know. So just like this basic behavioral science and um and just kind of like what I mentioned before when you talk about like the manufacturing industry. Like if your job as a designer is to just make a disposable plastic bottle, I don't know, slightly less polluting, like, okay, cool, maybe. I remember they, I saw when they had like the little caps, they they decreased the cap size. So instead of like a big cap, now it's like a little cap. And they're like, we saved all this plastic and all of these creatures from dying because our plastic cap is now half the size that it was. It's like, well, I suppose it's a move in the right direction, but ultimately if you really want to be a powerful designer, you want to be looking at how to, put reusable bottle infrastructure into the world. Like how do we have it in parks? How do we have it in lobbies, in gyms? So instead of like the vending machine where you get all the plastic bottles, like what are we gonna be designing? I mean, that's where you wanna have your imagination in, not imagination in not just the single product. So they're the kind of like two things I think design educators could enhance their curriculum in. Yeah, just I think- Just add something there, okay. sorry, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> um just uh, uh while katie was uh, talking i was thinking um if i had to break down everything i learned about sustainable design into i can basically break all of it down into just two things um that we need to know one would be ethics and i think that's a really good uh, way to start um for any project so rather than i would never say to my students uh, we, we need to create and or, or would never unless it's in the brief, but, you know, like as in it has to be like uh, environmentally sustainable, but rather let them figure out what's important to them. I find those uh, those briefs the most valuable lesson most of the time that I let them figure out what's important to them, uh, figure out their own values. What do they believe in? What's important to them? And that could be, you know, societal issues or environmental ones. And then they build their project around that, figuring out, the problem that they want to solve themselves. So that's something we can all integrate into briefs and into the cur curriculum quite easily because it doesn't have to be very, it's defined on the student's own values. So they have to figure it out themselves. And a lot of them are probably going to say, I care for environmental stuff anyways. So it's going to be an environmental project. And then the second thing is, um, I think all we need to know about sustainability is the life cycle of whatever we're designing, producing, and considering each and every part of that and asking questions about it. That's really all it is. That's all there is to know that we need to ask ourselves in each stage of the product. So if I'm designing a print product that's more tangible, you know, I'm looking at paper and ink and uh, the computer that I use to design and where is the product going in the end or in a digital product, I have the same thing. I'm using resources and I put it, uh, the data on a server. So there's, there's things involved, there's steps involved. In the end, it's one life cycle though. So within that one life cycle, I'm looking at the individual points and, where does it come from? What resources did it take? And where does it go afterwards? And that's all we can ever do. So it's all about asking questions for the whole chain, for the whole cycle of the product. I think that's all there is to know in the end. Well, so it can I'm, be quite easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds, it sounds easy the way you put it. Uh, as, as also the, uh, I said in the beginning, as I'm also kind of a panelist here, I'll, I'll add in my two cents to that question. In case it does help, I think something I learned with doing a lot of community-based work was to seek wise counsel. And so um, if I wanted to teach something but didn't know enough, I would invite someone who did know into the classroom. So I've brought in uh, two climate scientists over the years when I was working on projects that did involve behavioral change, right? And they didn't know, like as Katie illuminated before, how to create behavioral change, but they did provide the facts, right? They helped me teach the students about what's the situation, right? And, you know, one of my students even asked like, so is climate, is the climate crisis gonna be something that we have to worry about? And I could see him roll his eyes and say, basically the, the job's not getting done from the academic paper standpoint to communicate to the general public this is something that needs to be acted on now. So bring, bring important um, experts into the classroom, 
uh, that helps. And I think the other thing, someone actually put it in the chat, which is great, which was, you know, designers have clients or stakeholders in what they do. And just put as a parameter for your project, earth is a stakeholder, you know, who speaks for the air and who speaks for the water and who speaks for the land? Well, if, if uh, no one's doing it, we have to do it. And so if that's a parameter for your project, it's going to force uh, you as the educator to start um, doing some more homework on, like what Lisa said, what's the life cycle impacts of, of these things. And so I'm... Can I say something yeah. else about that? Go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Oh, one thing that I find that people ask um, me, it's a, it's a little bit tangential, but I think it's a really interesting thing to think of. It's more in terms of how people are out in their careers working commercially. And so people, they're like budding designers and they're looking for work, you know, and often like your job will dictate what you have to do. So the designer may not have much freedom to do kind of interesting things that they want to do. And so they'll say to me, Katie, how do you get to work on these interesting projects and do this thing? And I say, well, 95% of what I do, I actually don't get paid for. And I'm just coming up with ideas constantly and putting them out into the world. So I have kind of tangentially came into this space by just, reading all the behavioral psychology, which was really interesting. It gave me a whole bunch of ideas. I started putting them into Photoshop because I was like, these ideas are cool. I'm just going to like put it in Photoshop and then mock it up. And then I had more and more. And I was like, gee, I better put a page on my website to put all these ideas on. And then there was like 30 or 40 of them. You know, I'm like, this is actually really fun. And people share them a lot on social media. So I just kept on mocking up ideas constantly some of them are kind of out there and they may never really happen you know like magic leap for the whole biophilic city i mean that's a pretty out there expensive project if it was ever going to happen but then as i put these out there people start actually like connecting with them and then somebody will call me and they'll be like oh, katie we're doing a gamification project for something green and we saw your thing you know could we pay you to do basically good money to do like a dream job with great people and so I don't think you need to follow the career, the, the conventional career path as a designer. You don't need to just like get a regular job, be told exactly what to do. Um, you can like totally carve out your own path. Like I call myself a Fitbit for the planet designer. It literally does not exist as a profession. I'm just sort of like making it up as I go. You can just put out great work, market yourself, network a lot, invent your own niche. And then eventually somebody will pay you to do it. Like I promise you eventually, if you keep on it and network enough, someone will pay you to do it. You don't need to let the industry and the market define who you are and what you do. Just be bold and just come up with your own ideas and carve your own way, develop your own identity and your own style. Yeah, I think that's another really important point about, you know, even what you tell your design students is your career doesn't have to be what you are just told or maybe um, you're foresee it could be as you go into design school, it could be so many other things. And so I think inviting both Lisa and Katie Patrick into your classrooms would be a fantastic idea for the fall because I think they would be a great, um, ins great inspiration for your students. Well, let's take a quick break here for some commercial messages. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Uh, so like I said, we're coming into about 30 minutes left here and, and um, I'm all for anyone turning off their mic and, and asking a question to all of us as a group and of course the panelists. Um, so if anyone does have a burning question that they didn't get answered in the chat, which I don't think we've answered most of those, just unmute yourself and we'll uh, be happy to meet you. 
I have I, I have a question about tracking tracking all these parameters when it comes to companies. And a, a few months ago, I read a very interesting article about a reporter who was trying to track down the supply chain that Amazon uses to make their batteries. And the whole article went into how, you know, how contaminating making batteries is, but how companies are fighting at, at all lengths. You know, the, the article covered all the money that was being poured in to hide who these suppliers were. The reporter eventually found out, you know, in the factories, all this, like all this waste was being generated. It was like the, and, and I'm wondering what, what is, if, do you have any good tip as to how do you suggest we begin to understand how to better track these? Because, you know, the, the supply chains of these companies, for me, you know, it, it takes a long time to understand how these things work. And then of course they go into all these tangential, all these naming conventions that become very businessy and then we get lost. I mean, and I bet that they're doing it on purpose so that we never find out, but it, it's, sure. it, it, it's all of you have spoken today about transparency and data and a lot of what you're doing uses this data to make the world better, but I am struggling to try to understand how to get to that data so that I can make better choices. Well, I can say real quick that you made a comment that maybe they don't want you to know, and I think that's accurate. And for an example, I signed a project a number of years ago, which was um, for the students to, it was like a potluck. All the students brought their favorite dish and they had to make it themselves, or if it was cereal, they could bring the cereal. And, and uh, then afterwards, after we talked about it, I asked them to, to look at the supply chain and then the carbon footprint of the food they just ate, right? And it kind of was a shock to them that all of a sudden they had to do some work. They thought it was just a fun little potluck. But in the end, they had to, like you did, Alberto, and your students did, they had to call like investigative journalists, you know, General Mills, uh, companies that manufactured the pasta that they love uh, to figure out, you know, where are they getting their gluten-free pasta from or flour from, for example. And it was like hidden behind door after door after door of information until finally a few of them found out it was coming from India. And it's like, okay, well, um, I'm in Illinois and Kansas is just down the road, like, or Nebraska is just down the road, like what happened there? So um, it, everything is this large system, you know, and that's how nature works. It's it works in this interconnected set of systems uh, that ebbs and flows and what goes in, something comes out, right? And you wanna balance in that system. And so um, that's when we're thinking about um, sustainability, we're thinking about balancing that particular system. So uh, I think your question is a great one. And I think it's a really challenging thing to answer because some of the doors are closed and they don't want to let you in to see, but then you know, like, listen, I'm not going to spend my money here. <laughs> if you're not going to be transparent about it, and a lot of the younger generations and some of us as well are, we wanna know transparently where things come from. But I'll, I'll stop there and let someone else uh, come in on this. Oh, can I jump in? Because it's an area I'm really, I know about. Um, if you really want to take a deep dive, there's a book called, um, a book called uh, Disclosure. Now I kind of remember the title of it. Oh my God. Um, no, it's called Disclosure. It's called Disclosure. No, the trials and the trials and something of disclosure. Um, and there's a guy who studies it called Akon Fung at Harvard University. And so there's this field called mandatory disclosure because often when we're wanting to get data out there, not everybody will want the data out. The good players want, they want to be like, yeah, look how great we are, but then the bad players are not going to want to have it. So what you need is the government getting in there and mandating that the data is, um, is made public. It's really the only way to get a unanimous data set. However, the bright side for that is that industry doesn't really like being told what to do. Often industry doesn't like the EPA and they don't like environmental regulations. So you say, listen, we're not going to regulate that heavily. We just want to see the data. So they'll agree to the mandatory disclosure of data kind of as a trade-off when they won't want to agree to, you know, like really severe environmental restrictions. So these mandatory disclosure laws have been quite easy to get through, but they can have just as good effect because once you've got the mandatory disclosure, you can put everyone out like on a leaderboard and you can basically be like, well, why are you in the bottom five percentile of like really bad performers? 
all everybody will want to improve their score. And the EPA did this with toxic chemicals and they actually got, it was one of the biggest environmental wins of history that like hardly anybody knows about unless you like really work in the space. But they got a 45% reduction in toxic chemical use in America because the EPA put in this mandatory disclosure. And they didn't tell anyone they used to have to stop using toxic chemicals. It was just by looking at the data, they actually changed that. Um, so I think it is really difficult often to get the data. And I think your example was um, really cool that you mentioned Eric with the, the cereal and the pasta. Um, there's such a fun idea uh, calling companies, you know what? And if they don't know the answer, who knows how far it will go up to the top. I mean, you hear when companies talk about like changes they make, they're like, somebody wrote me a letter, you know? It's like, I don't know if it takes like that many people writing letters to make this change because often it doesn't, it doesn't seem to take that much. Um, and you could actually have like a really big effect. And like with the batteries, um, if you actually start asking questions, you know, maybe it could actually make a, bit, a bigger change um, than you think. But I mean, if anyone wants to work on it, you know, it, it all comes under that umbrella of mandatory disclosure. And there's been a lot of case studies and research done on it, how it affects things. Um, if you love to read academic policy papers for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm just going to jump in there if that's okay. Um, there's two resources that I wanted to share with you guys as well. Um, one is, I'll put that in the chat now. Um, I asked recently in an interview with uh, Tom Greenwood, who is um, the founder of Whole Grain Digital. It's just a, a very, very progressive, uh, sustainable web design studio in, in London. I asked him, how do you even... How did you go about assessing your your carbon footprint and in order to reduce it? And he was like, eh, well, so we didn't do it ourselves. <laughs> there is companies who do that for you. Um, one of them is uh, Plan A. I'm sure there is American versions of this out there, but they basically use AI in order to assess the the data that they, I don't really know how they gather the data, but I think it is painstakingly questioning uh, all the employees uh, about, uh, you know, what they do. Um, and then another resource I wanted to share, I just thought it's, it's really interesting. They don't really discuss everything on their website, um, but I think their approach is really interesting. And I think um, we're going to see a lot more of that. I'm just hoping that these assessing companies are going to be, you know, transparent with how they do that as well, because that's the only way it works. Um, another great resource I found um, by Ad Green, uh, also British based, but uh, anyways, they have an amazing resources guide, it's like a PDF that is very up-to-date kind of questions that you can ask yourselves in, in terms of, it's more advertising production, it's not my area so much, but it's a really, really interesting, just the way they ask the questions in there. Um, so looking at all individual like factors that uh, lead to you know, a sustainable corporation really, um, or business practice, the way they ask questions in that guide is really nice and can be transferred to whatever other area as well, I think. So um, I encourage you to have a look at that. Thanks, both of you. Are there any, are there any other questions from, from the audience? I have a quick question. Um, well, first I should say thank you all for all your hard work and research and information in this area. It's really helpful and useful. It's something that I am increasingly uh, interested in exploring and my students seem to be in the same category. So my first real exposure to sustainability was through working in a lead platinum office within an architecture firm. And it really changed the way I think about sustainable design as a whole. And then as I began teaching, I said, well, how can I share that experience with my students? Sadly on my campus, we don't have a single solar panel. Um, so I decided to bring them to a lead platinum building just to expose them. And it was phenomenal. Um, and so the bigger question is really, I think, around um, the connection between communication design and sustainable architecture. Like, you know, unfortunately, I feel like um, in many cases, there's a disconnect there because we're not teaching environmental design uh, you know, as much as we used to in these programs. So I just wonder if there's any other thoughts, if anybody's had similar experiences. And I mentioned in the chat, this idea of like lead accreditation for communication designers or something like that. 
So yeah, that's actually a really good question. And I, what I like about <coughs> lead is that the tiers uh, in the, the different lead um, up to platinum <clears throat> allow uh, architects to do better each time. And of course, like working with different clients budget in the world um, definitely goes down sometimes, of course. So if, if designers thought in a similar way, maybe as educators or practitioners, we could think about <clears throat> doing better each time and setting these sort of levels or tiers similar to lead. I tried to do that on Renourish and I think it's still there, renourish.org. And, it, and it's helped, you know, um, it's an educational process as well as it's a way to um, <clears throat> increase uh, the sustainability of the projects as they go along. Yeah, no, I used to be a lead certifier person. It was my first job I, I had. And um, I'm not a fan of the um, of the way that the Green Building Council has done it. Um, I think the the lead system, it's called Green Star, it's called different things in different countries, is good as an overall design framework. Like if you want to learn how to design a more sustainable building, it gives you like all these like 25 different sort of things to look at. And then people go through their accreditation course and they learn more about it. That's good. But in terms of like a, a, a tool to actually decarbonize building stock, I actually think it's really weak in its design and it's by no means like the gold standard. It doesn't use a single tool in the behavioral change toolkit. It's like, and also the thing is with the industry is that it's all based on new buildings, like not all, but like most of the time it's working on whenever a new building gets done, what about the other like 99% of buildings that are already there? Right. Um, so I'm a fan of using like um, the whole like disclosure idea that like every building needs to be like have its data out mandatory by the government. You cannot hide, maybe not for residential, but for commercial. You, you can't hide if you've got a really bad building. It's going to be out there on the street. Everybody can see it. It's got a little red light on it or whatever. Um, and all the buildings are ranked from best performing, you know, like carbon intensity per square foot, the best right down to the worst. And everyone's data is transparent. And that's the the upward spiral that we need, the data there. Um, anyway, that's just my thoughts on the lead thing. But when you're trying to think about that as a proxy, you know, for designers, I mean, having some sort of like course that people can go through is neat. But um, I think we need to be really wary of this eco-label design because I don't think eco-labels have ever come through that those types that just give labels. I think we want to be looking at like data feeds not labels and because labels are only going to be like oh look here's the really nice five percent you know you want to have everybody's data even the worst ones because that's what drives everybody like as a, as a group so just because people have done eco labels in the past doesn't mean we need to copy them and i think it's not um i think eventually they, i think they will eventually all go extinct mm. Yeah, I think yeah, there was a project like that that was done with clothing, right? I thought there was um, a way that you could um, either use augmented reality on your phone or go to their website to see, you know, like Patagonia, for instance, how how they uh, source their clothing. Uh, Everlane is another one that does it. Um, so I think that that was one that I was really familiar with was in the world of fashion. I feel like I interrupted somebody when I spoke. Was there someone else that wanted to say something? Oh, I was just going to mention as a follow-up. Of course, LEED is probably the most popular in the U.S. Um, system, but there are many, um, and there's a lot of debate about mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, which system is the best. Um, you know, it seems like LEED tries to go for this idea of something is better than nothing, um, you know, kind of generally, and they have a committee that constantly updates the protocols each year. Um, and they are shifting from new buildings to reuse and stuff like that. Um, but there are other ones like the living building challenge. I, just to mention another one that I think is um, much more innovative in getting buildings that are like, you know, fully sustainable and, and in many cases off the grid. Um, you know, here again, I think as communication designers, like where's our equivalent of the living building challenge, like in, in terms of the projects that we do. So, you know, sometimes I always thought like um, communication designers were ahead of folks like architects, you know, uh, in thinking about these things. But here, I, I actually think they are ahead of us to be qu quite honest. Um, and, um, 
you know, the, there's much more experimentation and I think uh, there's plenty of room for us to do more here. So that I, again, I think this panel is really um, uh, seeded with a lot of great ideas. Why don't you start it then? Start the living building challenge equivalent for <laughs> oh my designers. Gosh. Somebody's going great to start advice. it. Great yes. advice. I like it. Well, Don't be afraid of failure. Try it. If it doesn't work, you know, no, no one's going to have a hard feeling. Only yeah. growth. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put it on the list. Um, and Katie, you will be on the committee. <laughs> yeah, okay. I suppose I've dug my own grave there with that. Okay, I'll be on the committee. I got you. At least you got one friend, at least. And I'm sure lots of others. Who, anyone else should put their little hand thing up on Zoom if they want to be on the committee too. Well, actually, this this does lead into my like final question as in the last 10 minutes. A perfect transition. Thank you, Dan. And that is we're here at an AIGA Design Educators uh, Conference, right? And I'm really curious about what you as a community want to come of this particular panel, right? We're talking about an issue, climate change, which has a great effect on everyone and, and even more so on, on others, depending. And is it, does it stop here? I hope not. Like, what do we want to come of this as a community, as a collective, and how can we help each other get, get there? So that's kind of my, my parting shot in the last 10 minutes. Living building challenge for designers will happen. So what else? <laughs> and you can use your mic for this one as well. Why don't you get somebody who's a, um, like do a session on the type of people I interview for my podcast, the the environmental psychologists, because they're really, really smart. Um, and they know like so much more than us. And even I've just still, I'm still a beginner in the space, even though I specialize in it. Like they're like really advanced, kind of like the elders, you know, create a, mm -hmm. uh, get three of them and um to um to come on and ask them these questions and they'll have really insightful stuff to say. I think that's a great idea because it also tackles another issue we raised earlier, which was working down the silos. Why is there always graphic designers or industrial designers on the same panel? Why aren't there the people that Katie mentioned here? And, and there is a great idea that's easily uh, implementable. I was just going to say, you need to go back to the fundamental system of the way academia is structured, that it doesn't incentivize anybody to get out their information to people that can implement it usefully. They just need to publish, publish and stay quiet. Um, I mean, publicly quiet. So um, that fundamental structure is a constant disincentive for them to be out in conferences like this. True, true, very true. Can you change that as you work in academia, Eric? Can you, you can spearhead um, that. I'm gonna I'd give everybody have, jobs to do. <laughs> I'd have to go back to being an administrator and I don't wanna do that, but potentially from the ground up i can i can continue to work <laughs> a hack away at the ivory tower <laughs> yeah uh, is it elio you have a question comment yeah i have a comment um i think that one way to be more aware of them not not only climate change anything that could be wasteful is when you go through a need and then you actually experience that that lack of a resource then I think you would have a better understanding of the situation. Um, that's on, on, on one hand, is, is like trying to put yourself in the shoes of, other, of, of whomever is going through that experience in order to really, really understand that. And I don't really know how to make that happen. It's like, okay, we have to be more aware about water waste. So I'm going to shut you know, your water supply and then you have to take a shower with a little cup as I have done it hmm. in, in, during times of, um, of drought, right? And there's nothing that you can do <laughs> or lack mm -hmm. of electricity because the shining path is taking the towers, you know, knocking them down and then the city goes completely black. And then you say, now I have to come up with a, a way. Of course, this, there are different reasons, but when you go through that experience, you may be able to be more aware of what to do or to be wasteful. I mean, I made a silly comment on the, on, on the chat saying that I have never bought bottled water. I've never done it. And uh, whenever I'm tempted, I said, no, I cannot break my record. So I continue, 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 right? <laughs> so, 
I think it's by making probably some uh, decisions about that. And then the second part would be about the collaboration and the working in groups. I find that also very challenging, not impossible. We talk a lot about that in my institution. We talk about collaboration a lot. It has become just this phrase. But when you want to make it happen, you encounter this, um, these difficulties and there are ways to make it, to make it, to make it work. It's just, you have to work much harder. So mm -hmm. then how do you really, um, I have this, uh, this project last, last semester in which students had to work together in order to create social media ads for Instagram to promote our programs. And man, they, they struggled, you know, working together and you give them all the information, but that's the thing they told me. Personally, he said, I don't want to be dragged down by somebody who is not going to be responsible as I am or things like that. So those are the yeah. challenges, you know? So sometimes we talk at least um, within, within some groups that we should be doing this and that and that and say, how can we make that happen? Those strategies are the ones that we need to discuss also a little bit more. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes we forget, you know, we have a great assignment and they work in groups and we forget group dynamics and to talk about the group dynamics and how to make that um, run smoother. I think we face that every time, <laughs> I know I have. So that's a really good point. Um, so uh, what, what else uh, comes to mind from, from uh, everyone here? Just think groups of where it's at. Everything I've been, my whole, um, what do you call it, zeitgeist of the last six weeks for me has just been group, 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 thinking groups, which is a little bit hard with COVID, but just I have never in my whole life thought that everything has to be done via group psychology. And now I'm just totally in a different headspace about designing for groups. So, uh, you know, if you just tell people your design objective is to get groups of humans to influence each other through forming a group with a common goal, got a totally different framework to if you see people all as individual actors. Yeah, for sure. And, and I actually, I talked to a climate scientist who mentions, which I think is very positive, that designers, in his view, are really good at piling on like new knowledge through the different clients they work with from different sectors, and that um, we always have to keep track of, you know, technology and how we make things and, and the supply chain of where things go. And so I think my takeaway from his conversation or his comments were that we can do this. We can add behavioral science into our repertoire. It takes work, working uphill, like Elio said, it's a lot of it's a challenge, but I think it's something we have to do. I'm all in on it. And so I'm very open to working with any of you on, on things going forward in the fall and beyond on what I want to come out of this conversation is just more conversation and more action because there's really not a lot of time to waste on this. And I find myself every day like, oh, I don't want to go and do this. But I know like the, the clock is ticking. I have to go do this. This isn't something where I can just wait a week and get back to it because, you know, hopefully what I'm doing will have a positive impact. And uh, of course, that's why I said yes to this panel because I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to wait around and not have it happen. But my final thoughts are that um, a lot of these uh, conversations I've had over the pandemic over at climatedesigners.org and I've met fantastic people, uh, including Katie and Lisa through that group, either directly or tangentially from other people there. And it's broadened my knowledge of what uh, we talked about today. Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.